0: Oh, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and uh, uh, podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper.
1: I'm Danny Slater.
0: And today's program is produced by Matt Horniak. As usual, uh, listeners are invited to call the program at 412-268-WRCT. That's 268-9728. 268-9728. Or we also monitor electronic mail during the broadcast. You can send mail to bob at leftout.info. One word, uh, with left out. And we'll get your email with a few, usually with a few minutes delay. Uh, we can start today's program with a few announcements. First is to begin with a with an apology, which is, as many of you may know, the station's uh, transmitter has been uh, down for a few weeks, and we were broadcasting, WRCT was broadcasting on low power, so we were reaching only a very limited audience uh, in the last uh, two or three weeks. Uh, we're now back up on full power, and I hope that uh, everyone can hear us uh, uh, as well as they uh, normally can, which would be great. So thanks to the uh, technicians here at WRCT for getting that sorted out, and uh, apologies to our audience for the inconvenience. If you're interested, we did have a show two weeks ago. You may not have been able to get it on the radio. Um, As ever, we're podcasting our programs uh, on leftout.info website. The January 24th program uh, is available there, and you can listen to it there. We spent most of that program broadcasting a speech uh, that was given by uh, Al Gore in honor of Martin Luther King's uh, birthday um, on uh, two weeks ago on the 24th. Uh, And uh, talking about, or the 23rd possibly, uh, talking it was the about 16th, the... the 16th, actually. <clears throat> the speech, oh, the speech was, was the 16th. 16th. Okay. M- m- so we broadcast it a week yeah. later. Right. And uh, you might want to listen to that because it was very well worth listening to and was hardly covered uh, in the corporate media. Uh, a few so, other yeah. announcements? Uh,
1: one other thing to just uh, remind our listeners that uh, um, on WRCT <clears throat> you also find Democracy Now! Uh, weekdays at 8 a.m. Uh, and uh, Free Speech Radio News weekdays at 5.30, right before... Public This program and all the other public affair programs on WRCT and 6 o'clock on weekdays. On Wednesdays, we have Fight and Lefty Review. That's tomorrow. Uh, and after this show at 7 o'clock, there's a, a show called After the Bell, which is about Wall Street. Um, and alternating with our show is a show called Off the Lid. No, The Lid Off. The Lid Off. <laughs> um, that's another public affairs program with the um, editor of the... Um, the local magazine, uh, that free magazine they give out uh, what 's it called
0: the Pittsburgh city paper
1: yes, I think the city paper mm-hmm. yes, forgot his name Cooper, mm-hmm. forgot his first name anyway, sorry about that, and then on mondays there's Rust Belt radio uh, that you can all there 's a great program um, uh, that 's uh, on mondays so
0: one of our, Monday. one of our best, I would say
1: okay, so uh, so we 'll start off the program today with um, a visitor uh, of the guest uh, who's c- uh, calling in uh, from the Washington, D.C. area, Robert Perry, who's uh, been a long-time uh, reporter uh, and uh, a d- blogger on a website called ConsortiumNews.com. And, um, Robert, are you there? I'm here. Great. glad to have you with us. Let me just also uh, mention that Robert is the author of several books, including uh, one called Secrecy and Pli- P- Privilege. Um, it's about uh, the Bush administration, the whole Bush dynasty, um, uh, and uh, how they operate. Um, so, um, yeah. In fact,
0: uh, Robert, I wondered if you might uh, tell us a bit about this book. The subtitle is "Rise of the Bush Dynasty: From Watergate to Iraq." I wonder if you might start out by summarizing and uh, telling us about your book.
2: Yeah, sure. The, uh, uh, the uh, secrecy and privilege uh, looks at how the the two George Bushes uh, developed their political careers and rose uh... to the pinnacle of american political power um... it also is set with the backdrop of the changes in the uh... american political system the rise of the right wing uh... news media the uh... the failure of uh... of the democrats to challenge aggressively or effectively in terms of doing oversight of the republicans even going back through the nineteen eighties uh... i was with the associated press and newsweek during much of that time and 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 did some of the early Rant contra stories uh... so the story reflects how the older George Bush both got going when he was working for Nixon and trying to uh, fend off the Watergate scandal in the 70s and later became CIA director, but also how he behaved as vice president and president, uh, and then showing how he was able to escape some of the more serious scandals at that time because there were not thorough investigations of what he had been doing. Uh, he left with his reputation more or less intact. And was able then to, uh, eight years later, help his son uh, take over the White House too. So you had, you had this resumption of a, of a family dynasty with many of the same players from the 1980s uh, playing key roles. People like Dick Cheney, who was a key figure uh, in Congress in the 1980s, fending off the Iran-Contra scandal. He shows up later as Defense Secretary, Secretary of course, uh-huh. and then later as Vice President. So you have, you basically have a sweep of 30 years of how both the Bushes rose and how our political system, in a sense, uh, degenerated over that time.
0: So it's an interesting thesis. I think there's an awful lot of truth to it. I wonder if you might uh, amplify a little bit more for our our listeners about the the elder George Bush's involvements in the CIA and the kinds of things you mentioned he's escaping.
3: Well, he
2: was... um, Essentially, Nixon first saw him as somewhat of a fixer uh, of George Bush Sr. was very well connected. He had both strong family and personal ties on the East Coast, the Wall Street crowd, uh, because of his, um, you know, his family connections there. And he also, having moved his family to Texas, uh, became involved with the oil industry and so developed a lot of very powerful connections there. And Nixon saw him as someone who, because of those connections, could, could appeal to politicians at a level that uh, a lot of folks can't. And so uh, Nixon brought him on as the Republican national chairman in 74 to try to, uh, actually 73, to sort of stop the spread of Watergate. Um, and, and Bush did a fairly good job of that, he even got this very interesting feature of the, of the book about how uh, Bush worked with Bob Strauss, another Texan who was head of the Democrats, in trying, both of them trying to get Watergate off the agenda. Uh, so even the Democratic chairman was, was working with the Republicans Behind the scenes to sort of uh, smooth over that uh, that that rough water for the Republican, and so you have this remarkable story of how he did he did that. He ultimately failed, of course, but came back in '76 when there were scandals around the CIA that uh, President Ford wanted to put on the back burner. He wanted to get the news off the front page, and so uh, Bush came back from uh, an assignment to China and and began. Uh, taking over the CIA with a view of how you could really finesse those scandals and, uh, and keep them from being uh, examined too closely. And he played a very very effective role, as far as the agency was concerned, in fending off uh, some of the investigations that were then looking into very serious scandals. Um, and one, of course, occurred under his watch, which was the, one of the worst acts of terrorism uh, in, in U.S. history at that time, which was the assassination of uh, of uh, Chilean diplomat Letelier mm-hmm. in the streets of Washington. Mm-hmm. His car was blown up, and an mm-hmm. American woman who was tra- traveling with him was killed too. Uh, and Bush helped contain that scandal to keep it off the front pages. As Ford almost uh, managed to, to to defeat Jimmy Carter. Carter, of course, did pull out the victory. So you see this kind of this role that Bush uh, was playing as kind of this behind the scenes, well connected player, uh, which. Helped him then later in 1980 become, uh, vice, the vice presidential, uh, nominee, uh, and using a lot of his CIA and, uh, powerful connections, he helped Reagan, um, uh, reach, reach the White House. And then he was, he was very much an important player behind the scenes in the 1980s, uh, orchestrating some of the connections to Iraq. He was assisting in the the efforts to get weapons to Saddam Hussein during that period, Mm -hmm. as well as being involved in the Iran-Contra affair, which was to get weapons to the Iranian side as well. There was an effort to play both sides against each other. So you had this very secretive aspect, none of which was really well investigated in the 1980s. Uh, The the, uh, the Iran-Contra congressional investigation uh, pretty much decided to reach a political solution uh, more or less blaming Oliver North and a few men of zeal, as they call them, uh, for the problems, and not really going after uh, Reagan and Bush for their principal responsibility for the scandal. That would have that would have provoked a, a really a constitutional crisis, and even in the, the Democrats and most of the you know, the major media at the time in Washington, didn't really want to have another Watergate, which was sort of the phrase in Newsweek that was sort of bandied about. So we had this this view that. It was best to just <coughs> sweep it under the rug, and um, but that ul- that ultimately redounded to a uh, to the Democrats' disadvantage um, when you get into the period of the the 1990s, when first of all the Republicans um, turn aggressively with, as they build up their as they build up their media, they turn on Clinton and really begin to tear him apart, um, and that paves the way for the revival of the Bush family. Uh, the sense that well that that at least George Bush senior was an honorable man and not and not like Bill Clinton, and that was an important factor for his son's rise in 1999 and 2000 to get the Republican nomination.
0: Yeah, and, and I myself have long suspected, and I, I think it's a commonly held opinion, that part of the animosity against Clinton was, uh, in fact, that uh, was really uh, uh, a symptom of oligarchy, which was that uh, uh, Clinton was not the right sort, as we well know, and he defeated uh, he defeated uh, George H.W. Bush, who very much is the right sort, and I think a lot of people just were indignant over the very idea riff-raff, yeah, Exactly, from
1: Arkansas, Arkansas, who actually
0: earned what he, what he, what he got, uh, was, uh, was somehow defeated the, uh, the privilege of uh, George Bush, H.W. Bush. Uh, it was uh, a
2: fascinating story in the Washington Post along those lines that uh, was written by Sally Quinn, um, the wife of uh, Ben Bradley, the longtime executive editor of the Post, and reflected exactly that tone. It was um, She was describing, this is the time when the Lewinsky scandal was beginning to unfold, and she described how the uh, how official Washington had hated Bill Clinton from the moment he got in, and she went back to his ninety three inaugural address where he he criticized Washington for being for being too focused on what he called the conventional wisdom of who 's up and who 's down rather than serving the american people and um, and Although it seems like a rather innocuous comment, it apparently got under the the skin of some of the Washington elite, both in the media uh, and in the political world. And so they really resented Clinton. They they did see him as a country bumpkin who was, uh, you know, who was putting on airs and and, and moving up too fast and too far uh, socially when he didn't really fit in. Uh, so there was that snobbery that went to it. And and I, I think Clinton also deserves some criticism for because he could have, when he took office in '93, done a lot more to um, to expose the real history of that era. He was trying. He tried. Um, to essentially let Bush Sr., you know, sort of go off into the sunset with right. self-respect self instead of telling the American people the truth. And he could have really simply done that by allowing documents to be released and, and, and having people responsible for seriously investigating some of these uh, serious elements like the Iraq arms shipments that have never been fully explained. Um, but he didn't and he didn't because he wanted to have bipartisanship and thought he could work with the republicans and his reward was to effectively be uh, attacked on everything If you remember in ninety three when he tried to get his budget through every single republican voted against him and uh... If, if he was forced to get some democrats to pretty much politically walk the plank to get through the the budget which it had some tax increases in it and, and, and but tried to bring the deficit down ultimately did ultimately got rid of the deficit and um, led to like many economists believe led to a period of extraordinary economic strength and growth for the United States. But when Clinton did that, he had to do it against it was already a, a tremendous momentum of attack that he and his wife were facing
1: yeah it 's one thing actually occurs to me and, you know <clears throat> in my naive moments. Why is it the case, and this is what you've just brought up, that presidents just, you know, why isn't there ever a president who just goes in there and says, you know, l- let's look at the files of the CIA. What have they been doing? And just exposing outrageous stuff that's been going on, the whole, you know, you, you investigated these things. You expo- You were one of the reporters who did expose these these things—the uh, South American, you know, the Central American and South American—you know atrocities being committed, uh, assassinations, uh, uh, such as Elende, uh and, and all kinds of other things that go on. Why isn't? Hasn't there ever been a president, Jimmy Carter included, to just go in and clean house and say, "Look, look what you guys have been doing. You can't do this anymore," and just expose it? I guess it's really well, naive, they,
2: right? I, no, I, I, you're not naive. I think it's—I think it's, it should be the kind of thing that presidents should do. I mean, the history. Uh. is important, especially in a democracy where, where the people have to know what has happened in the past to understand what's happening in the present and could happen in the future. Uh. but uh, a lot of politicians realize that's a very hard road to go down, and they, um. and they, and they know they come under heavy attack because the CIA is, is long being considered a bit of a, you know, a, a sacred cow in Washington when it comes to the real power structure. Uh, they'd be accused of undermining the national security by exposing too much of the you know, dirty linen over there. And uh, so they, they, they opt for more politically expedient approaches. In Clinton's case, he thought, well, he was focusing on the economy like a laser beam, if you remember, and he wanted to do this thing with, uh, with health care, which was certainly understandable. Uh, and he just felt that if he got bogged down in trying to expose all this, it would, it would undermine the first part of his presidency. He turned out to terribly miscalculated, not understanding the kind of hornet's nest he was, he was climbing into. But, I, but he did, I must say, Clinton did do more than some presidents. He, uh, he released, for instance, a lot of the documents relating to the Guatemalan uh, policies. Uh, because of the declassifications that Clinton did, uh, a truth commission in Guatemala was able to show that indeed a, uh, a systematic genocide had occurred against the Indian populations in the, in the highlands. And that uh, American administrations, most particularly the Reagan administration, had tolerated and helped it, and that's was very significant. It was actually, you know, it was one of those kind of stories, though, that was on the front page of the New York Times, led the paper one day when the, this report came out showing the U.S. was complicit in genocide in Guatemala, and then disappeared as a story because there really wasn't the kind of a medium, medium, uh, media interest in 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 putting out stories that made America look bad. Uh, you know, the, the national media has come on to come into this point where journalists want to get out there and, and, and boost the United States in this kind of, you know, cheerleading kind of way, as opposed to telling the American people the truth, even when it's not pleasant.
1: Yeah, I think people... Uh,
2: everyone wants to be considered, you know, part of the team. They all want to have their American flag lapels on, and they, they don't want to be accused of being unpatriotic. And that applies to politicians, and it applies to journalists as well.
1: Well, some people, I think, really don't like to see, see the U.S. disparaged at all. That that offends them, apparently. But for me, right. it's the truth is what's important, and even if it is disturbing that my own country is doing these things. In your name. Yeah, and with my money. So I had um, uh,
0: one moment uh, Danny we're we're, so we're talking to uh, Robert Perry who is a journalist and author uh runs consortiumnews.com the website and we've been talking briefly about his uh book Secrecy and Privilege which is about the Bush dynasty uh and Robert Perry's previously been a guest on Left Out in November 2004 and we're glad to have him back. Uh listeners are welcome to call in uh, we can uh we'd be happy to take questions. The number is uh, 412 uh, uh 621 on uh, 9728 or or four one two two six eight nine seven two eight either. Or you can send email to Bob at left info.
1: So uh, maybe we should go on to more more current events. Um if, i I gather you've been uh, you watched the hearings yesterday that um sure. took place uh regarding the um the um the wiretapping issue. Do you have a reaction to that or comments about it? Well
2: I mean uh, overall, I thought the the, the, the hearing was uh, by the Judiciary Committee was better, a lot better than what they did with Alito when, when uh, his hmm. nomination for Supreme Court Justice was there. This was a much more focused hearing. Much uh, the questions were a lot more uh, precise, and uh, and and I think uh, the the uh, the Democrats and some of the Republicans who who were concerned about this policy. Uh, did get their points across much more effectively. It be, it's pretty clear now that that um, that the that President Bush and his administration are claiming extraordinary powers, uh, and, and even Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, a Republican, made this point that if you follow their logic, uh, that the president has what they call plenary powers as commander in chief in wartime. Uh, plenary meaning um, unlimited. Um, that that the the logic is that the the checks and balances in the United States government, which are, are important to protect every American's liberties, uh, are gone, and that um in effect uh, the the Congress becomes a bit of an advisory panel, something like you might have seen in an old monarchy where you'd have some old council advise the king, <laughs> but that the king would have the ultimate say. And I think, and, and frankly, it was, what was sort of odd was that uh, Gonzalez, the attorney general, didn't really argue against that point very much. He was basically saying, yes, that, they, that while they were trying, they were, the, 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 the White House had made this argument that uh, the FISA law, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, had a provision of, a couple words that they were using as sort of a loophole to justify uh, Bush conducting this warrantless wiretap, Program without court approval. That if that if you if you sort of if, if people said that doesn't make any sense, then they'd fall back on their sort of uh, their unlimited powers as commander in chief at wartime. Uh, so there were a number of questions that were quite pointed on this, and the other 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 interesting element is how how little the White House is willing to say about even innocuous details uh, on this program. Uh, there's this pretense that if, by talking about the fact that the United States can intercept phone communications and emails as that, that somehow tips off the enemy <laughs> when <laughs> and this has been well known for years and years I mean who
0: would that, ever have that, thought we were t- we were listening to their telephone conversation
2: right but the, but this but this <laughs> uh, argument that you know anyone who talks about this is somehow uh, is somehow endangering the country was, uh, was was I think sort of poked through and the there was also an interesting point which i had not really thought of is that uh, uh, the while well, the White House will not say how many Americans have actually been Eavesdropped upon um, the the FISA law. The FISA the, under the FISA law, every year there's a report which says how many warrants have been approved by FISA. So, which is essentially the same thing, which is you know wiretapping of people inside the United States for on on foreign uh, intelligence questions. So so that's public, but for some reason the White House does not want to make public how many people were have been swept up into this program. And I think, yeah. as, as Senator Feinstein said, this you know she, her only conclusion is that this is a much bigger program than than the White House wants to let on. And you know, Bush has made this claim repeatedly that it's that it's just a matter that if Al Qaeda's calling an American, we, the, the U.S. government wants to know why. Well, which of course no one would dispute, but it's obviously a much more uh, expansive program than that. Yeah, that,
1: that doesn't square with that doesn't square with the fact that. Um, They've apparently been giving leads to the FBI by the by the tens of thousands to to <laughs> right. investigate that are all completely useless. Yeah,
2: but and it really turns out actually to burden the FBI and keep and, and tie up their investigators yeah. from, so it seems, from going it seems after like, more promisingly.
1: Based on you know the, the record, the the track record they've shown over many years of duplicity and 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 that. They probably didn't go to FISA. People keep saying, "Well, they should have gone to FISA because you know they've, they've rubber stamped almost every request over the years. They've rejected three out of ten thousand or something." But they don't. But the reason they're not going to FISA is probably because it's nefarious. I mean, it's, it's they're doing stuff that that it's I, based on their record. I mean, I don't trust at all what they're doing. They're, they're 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 probably spying on the Quakers. I mean, I don't. You know, who knows what they're doing?
2: Well, I think there was something that that Senator Graham said that was sort of interesting, where he sort of was uh, he was suggesting that one of the reasons you might have to do this kind of thing is to go after the so-called fifth columnists. That would and be me. I, and I think that, you know, a key, a key question which was raised is what is how are they defining things like al-Qaeda affiliates? Exactly,
0: um, exactly. You know, it's, not,
2: it's not a matter of just al-Qaeda. I mean, if yeah. we're just talking about the, the core group of, of terrorists or, and even some of their spinoff groups, but if one begins to get into this issue that, that anybody who does anything that, in, in, in the view of the White House aids and abets al-Qaeda, uh, I've I, I followed these guys long enough. I followed them in the 1980s, and that was, that was used uh, to, to really bring in almost any American who disagreed with the Reagan administration on, say, policies in Central America. There, you know, groups like CISPIS, which is the Committee in Solidarity, Solidarity with, with the People of El Salvador, was, was spied on. Uh, there were uh, there were like religious uh, groups that were spied on because they were critical of the of the Contra program in Nicaragua. So if, if if that's the kind of approach that the White House is taking, and as I say, many of the same people who were involved in those operations are back now. People like Elliot Abrams, who was uh, Assistant Secretary of State in the in the nineteen eighties, and now he's and now he's the Deputy uh, National Security Advisor. Um, so you have this you have these people with long track records of using these kinds of definitions uh, it does seem that they could probably very in a very sweeping way conclude that anyone who has you know caused trouble for the president's program is somehow an al-Qaeda affiliate we don't know that but that's certainly a suspicion that right. that and since they won't talk about how many people they have have, have spied on or surveilled under this program it, it makes it very hard to make judgments but They seem to want to keep something secret that isn't really necessary to keep secret. You know, if it really is 50 people they're looking at, they could say so. If it's 5,000, they could say so. If it's 50,000, they could say so. But I think they're afraid if they say the higher numbers, uh, the American public will say, are you kidding? And out of that, how many of those people actually were shown to have al-Qaeda connections? And it would be, be infinitesimal. So... Clearly, they're sweeping up a lot more people than, than they actually have any real grounds
0: for. Personally, I'm much more cynical than that. I, 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 my suspicion is that they're spying on their political enemies and they're using this for whatever purpose is convenient and, ex, and expeditious at the moment without regard to terrorism or any other matter. But that's uh, my opinion. I don't, I don't have information to back that up. I wish I did. Uh, but well, one thing...
1: Well, just ahead. what is this issue of mm-hmm. wartime? Like, what? <clears throat> Let's see, I guess we're at war with Iraq... First we were at war with Al-Qaeda, that's the war on terror, and then the U.S. unilaterally and, uh, attacked a country that wasn't threatening the U.S., and that, that created a war. I guess we're at war now, aren't we?
0: guess we're at war. the, the old, U.S. decided to attack... But, according to Rumsfeld, this is now the long war we're in, by the way.
2: Right. I think, I think that is the key issue. Yes. This is unlike any war um, that we can remember.
0: Because there's, no outcome, most, uh, yeah. there's no
2: outcome. There's no outcome. There's no end to it. Mm-hmm. So if, if in one time it'd be, it's, well, it's an <coughs> argument to say that, well, should Franklin Roosevelt be given extraordinary powers for the period of three or four years that it takes to win World War II, you can maybe say, okay, we can bend the rules a bit. Same with, say, Lincoln during the Civil War. Okay. Uh, but when you get into a situation where a war is not definable, that it is by definition almost indefinite. And we'll go on for our lifetimes and probably our kids' lifetimes, because you're fighting really a tactic, terrorism, not really any specific defined group anymore. That means that the powers the president's asserting are not just a temporary measure. They are a permanent change in the system of the U.S. government. And it wipes away checks and balances. You, and checks and balances are not just something, oh, well, Congress has some privileges, well, who cares? Checks and balances are the fundamental way that the Founding Fathers uh, devised to protect the liberties of Americans, that, that if, you, if you have government agencies checking each other, that allows the American people to operate with the Bill of Rights and with their constitutional uh, uh, rights protected. And if you, if you go back to a system, as the Founding Fathers had lived with, where there was a king, where there was a, uh, what they call a now a unitary executive, um, that would mean that, they, that you as a citizen have no real rights except the rights that the king, or in this case the unitary executive, wants you to have. And that's what we have now seen. Bush has effectively asserted that on his judgment alone, any American citizen who he deems an enemy combatant, even if you're not armed and if you're in the United States doing nothing, you can be put in jail without charge, without trial, indefinitely. Uh, he, he can he say he's, he's asserted the power to spy on you, to to tap you, to to effectively do almost anything, and even torture. He's asserted the broad power to torture. And when and when McCain and uh, and Graham and others put through the. That amendment at the end of last year, which said there's, you know, which prohibited degrading treatment of detainees, Bush uh, attached a a, a so-called signing signing statement statement under the unitary executive theory, which says he will not be bound by this. That he, under his constitutional powers as commander in chief, he will not be bound by these by the law that Congress passed.
0: And, and, so and, in
2: effect, he's saying he can do anything. And we, as a nation, and that, and that did come out of the hearing uh, yesterday.
0: Mm-hmm. But we, as a nation, seem to be doing nothing whatsoever about it. I mean, the head uh, Gonzalez came to the hill, but they decided that they weren't going to swear him in, so that he wouldn't be liable for lying.
2: Well, I mean, lying to well, Congress I mean, I, I, is still think, a crime, I mean, isn't it? It's still a crime. Yes, it's, it's still it's, a crime Gonzalez, to lie. To Congress. Mm-hmm. I think you know it is something that uh, is done because uh, obviously sometimes people are sworn in before Congress. Yes. Uh, so it, it's a way to sort of drive home the point that you really better tell the truth right. uh, but it, it is still it is true that if if Gonzalez were to have gone before Congress uh, the Senate yesterday and lied he would still face legal liability
1: well but but I think your point Bob was that you were just w- what are we going to do? What is I mean, going to happen? Here be we any- have a
0: situation of an ill-defined permanent state of war. That's the best war these the guys president- could ever imagine. And then the president decides to redefine his job by saying that his job is to defend the United States. When in fact we all know perfectly well the American people. That's what he loves to say: the American people. The uh, when we all know that perfectly well that his job is to uphold and defend the Constitution. In doing so, he's blatantly and flagrantly violating the Constitution and telling us. To the kisses behind, because uh, we see if we do anything about it, and really, collectively, we do nothing.
2: Well, I mean, that's—I'm not going to really argue with that, <laughs> that analysis entirely, but the um, it, obviously, some people are doing things about it, and we are seeing um, uh, an upsurge in um, in—I in, you know, think—citizen uh, uh, agitation and concern. Uh, a lot of it's being expressed <laughs> through the internet. Uh, some of it is now even being reflected through some of the Democrats who, who are, are hearing from their constituents much more aggressively and forcefully than they have for a number of years, I think. That, so they're beginning to put some more spine in their backs, To you know, but, but still you see the failure of something on the Alito case, which was very important, because Alito now makes, there are now four members of the U.S. Supreme Court that fully support Bush's interpretation of his powers. You have Thomas, you have Scalia, uh, you have Roberts, and you have uh, and you and, and you have Alito. So you have, and the question now becomes: Will Anthony Kennedy swing to their side? And he's obviously a very partisan Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, so you have the potential that the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be the arbiter of these matters, although I guess Bush can say they're irrelevant too if he wants. Um, but if if they say that now, if they interpret some 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 case that comes before them as saying, "Yeah, Bush is right. He can do whatever he wants." A very important element of of how our government functions has changed again. So the Alito nomination and confirmation was very important, and the Democrats really didn't show up much. Not they had the votes to stop it through a filibuster, but chose not to have a filibuster. uh... Basically, they had one, but then they they well, his wife cried. And voted against
1: it. <laughs> his wife cried. That was a big story, you know. And, and those, <laughs> right. big, those and bad the senators made problem. her cry. It's you know, the it's big really with The
2: media and the other big the big the big problem here is the media, which has. Uh, which i write about in, in secrecy and privilege and the the way the way the right has built up its media apparatus into, into this very fearsome vertically integrated operation from they they have from book publishing and newspapers and magazines to radio and television internet these is, these are very well funded operations and so people can make a lot of money if they work within that structure plus there are attack groups that have been set up really starting going back to the 70s attack groups that went after individual reporters who were who were telling the truth, getting out information that these guys didn't want to have out? So those groups attacked and, and and tried to marginalize mainstream reporters who were doing their jobs, and and no one really came to the defense of those reporters. So so what happened over time was that the mainstream media, uh, for various reasons, began tilting more and more to the right, out of mostly out of fear of the retaliation they faced. So. We now end up with this very uh, one side a very aggressive right wing media, and the other side kind of a very weak need mainstream media, and the progressives really haven't stepped up to build up a the uh, kind of serious counterforce force that uh, would be needed. So we've had this terrible crisis in media, which uh, has also changed the way the America works. And so many Americans who drive, you know, listen to AM radio, driving through what we call the red states. Um, are listening to really very hate-filled uh, right-wing AM radio. Oh, don't worry; it's and, true
0: in the blue states as well,
2: <laughs> and it's true in most, of the, in many of the blue states. I was just, I was I was took a trip in the summer driving up um, up through uh, you know the, up along the East Coast through New York, and I was going up to Canada. And um, most of the time, you could almost always pick up some far right-wing station. But unless you're in the New York area, you really didn't hear like an Air America or some of the more progressive kind of. Uh, radio, which has really just started really developing in the last year or so, and is still grossly underfunded for what would be needed for some kind of balance.
1: Well, I, so noticed- I think
2: we have a, So we have a systemic problem, and, and I think you're right that uh, it's, it does appear that the American people and that the system is not reacting as, as, as clearly and forcefully as, as you might expect. So- but there are some positive signs, and but there has to be really a commitment by the american people to make this democracy function like it's supposed to
0: so this is and, a good, and not
2: just roll over when, when, when the executive tells us to.
0: This is a good pr- uh, m- uh, moment for us to promote your website. So we're <laughs> speaking to uh, Robert Perry, who's a journalist and author who runs ConsortiumNews.com, which is a very good source of original articles of analysis, investigation into the news. And I urge our listeners to check out Consortium News and also Robert Perry's recent book called Secrecy and Privilege about the uh, the Bush crime family, to borrow a phrase from Mike Malloy and Air America Radio uh, and their and their history. And if you'd like to talk with uh, Robert Perry, uh, you're welcome to call at uh, 412-268-9728, and uh, we'll be happy to take your questions.
1: So um, I noticed that um, during the State of the Union address, there was a program on um, thinkprogress.org. I think it's a a progressive um, think tank, um, the Institute for American Progress. And they teamed up with Air America Radio, have a bunch of people on there sort of talking about the State of the Union address and uh, analyzing it. Um, and I started looking at stations that were carrying it, and I noticed that um, two stations in, there was one in um, Wisconsin and one in Colorado. I, I clicked on their, those those station websites, and it turns out that there are clear channel stations. So right. clear channel, I mean, we think of them as being the right-wing, you know, right wing, you know uh, you know, Dixie girl, uh, Dixie chick, disc burning um, <laughs> station that doesn't allow any, anything against Bush on the air, but apparently it's not true. They're they're looking at the bottom line, and, and even more, and they, they decided that Air America is going to make some money for them.
2: Right. I mean, that is an interesting development, and it, and I've I've talked to some of the people involved with founding Air America, and what they what they say is that. Uh, obviously, it took. A, it was very tough to get a 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week uh, uh, programming set up, and and they stumbled. They came out in 2004 initially, and they really didn't have much money behind them. Almost went bankrupt, and so really had a you know did not have an easy liftoff. But once they got going, and once the, the, the ratings showed in, in the, some of these uh, cities how, how how eager people were to hear an alternative point of view. That Clear Channel began taking some of its weaker stations. Uh, in Washington, is a, a very weak uh, channel in terms of power, in terms of its reach. But it's so. But it's a, it's a it's a station that Clear Channel owns that they decided to turn over to Progressive Talk Radio, which they use a mix of uh, Air America and independent um, uh, progressive uh, shows, and uh, it's done pretty well. You know, it, and I think that's the, what people are finding in many of these cities around the country. Um, there is this audience for something different than than having uh, you know competing right wing voices uh, screaming, um, which is how it is in many places. So I think it's uh, it's in, and Clear Channel is doing it just because they feel they can make money at it, which is I think you know I'm personally very much in favor of of making money at these kinds of things. So
1: um, they own about they did, four did the, stations. That is a
2: positive development for some kind of balance.
1: They own about several stations in Pittsburgh, and I'm just. Hoping that one of these days they'll just flip one of them over to, uh, to Air America.
2: That would
0: be great. Well, it's nice to end uh, end our, our discussion on a positive note. Usually, I of, often feel so pessimistic. Uh, it would be great if this were to, if this were to be the case. We we may have a caller. Do we have a caller on the line? I'm looking at my producer. Do we have a caller on the line? No, we're going to keep going. Okay, so uh, thank you, Robert Perry, for being uh, on Left Out uh, this week. We appreciate your being on the air. We've been speaking with Robert Perry from ConsortiumNews.com, and I uh, strongly urge uh, our, our listeners to to have a look at Consortium News. It's a very useful site for original reporting on the news, uh, news, news, and current events. And I often enjoy reading it myself and use it as a source of information. Robert Perry, thank you very much for well, uh, for being on Left Out. We'll take a brief break, and uh, we'll come back in a few moments.
4: Fallujah, Ramadi, to be a party. The Cuba, Samara, there, Samara. The Tigris, Euphrates, Abu Ghraib. Way on off overseas, there's a place called Iraq you know. That's where you're gonna go instead of college next fall. Bodies in the sand, is that a piece of someone's hand? Shooting people in a foreign land, it's called Iraq, you know. That's where you're gonna go. G.I. and Sunni, uh, suicidal loonies. Just hope when their, their car starts, ex- it don't turn to car parts. In Moms and Shahaddy, you be my big guy caddy. Don't do it like you know. You'll get drafted in a year or so. No, it yep. It's really gonna go. Now they be rational. Saddamas, dead enders, huge ass fender benders. Like a Caribbean cruise Without the water, the chicks, or booze If you don't make it least, you'll make the news Around page 8 or so You'll help fill out the ranks So we can all fill up our tanks A yellow ribbon will be all the thanks You get from us, you know down in Iraq, you're, you're coming, and Kurdish, you don't speak a wordish. ish The Jaffna, Zaria, Gia, Tertesia, from Monty, Fallujah, Bush is really screwed up. Ooh, you've been crashing in a year or so. it's really all the blow. Down in Iraq, be all you can be, look for WFD. The drag. No body armor, here's a body bag. Mom and dad will get to keep the flag, they sent you back in though. Back from Iraq, the hell? The gonna be a party. Cuba tomorrow, go when there's a Mara. There's a Euphrates, Abu Ghraib, baby.
0: That was uh, Arakamo, which was being circulated uh, by uh, freewayblogger.com. dot com is a recent uh, recent production produced with the permission of the Beach Boys, apparently. Um, and uh, it's been and I urge our listeners to look. Uh, there's a website called freewayblogger.com dot com, which uh, gives you uh, examples of people's efforts to get the word out and express their opinions by making signs for freeway overpasses and so on to uh, to really make your point. And they have instructions on how to make these signs and do it efficiently and and get it out there, and I uh, I urge people to have a a look. There's a lot of very uh, amusing in some cases and really uh, makes me proud to see the efforts that people have gone through to try to cut through the crap that we hear on the corporate media all the time. Uh, the next topic we have today on Left Out, we'd like to talk about a, a, a subject of very considerable current interest, which we've talked about before on uh, on on uh, on Left Out, is is the issue of voter verifiable paper trails for voting machines. In fact, uh, my co-host Danny Slater and a colleague of ours, David Eckhart, had a uh, an op-ed piece in the uh, Post Gazette this past weekend on Sunday uh, that was titled "Danny, remind me of what it was titled." Uh,
1: computers uh, and voting, uh, a dangerous a dangerous mix. A
0: dangerous mix. And uh, Danny was previously also on the on Cue program at WQED talking about voting machines and was today at the uh, County Council's uh, Board of Elections meeting in which they're deciding on uh, possibly choosing voting machines that don't have an, the possibility of a paper audit trail. So Danny, I wonder if you can bring us up to date on what yeah. happened. Yeah.
1: Um, well, the, okay. So they've had three public meetings that I'm aware of so far. One back in November that I went to. I actually went to all three. One. Um, uh and and Bob and I, I were spoke both there in November yeah, yeah. as well and uh the, and uh, they were sort of just that was a more generic meeting about about uh the high level question of you know the vote, voting systems um <clears throat> a week ago they um the meeting they're really under the wire to get to purchase these machines because the HAVA the Help America Vote Act which was passed in I think 2001 uh requires them to um to get machines that, uh, will satisfy the needs of disabled voters. And the money's available to do this, but they have to do it this year. And if they don't do it this year, then, um, apparently they'll lose the money. And so the problem is that right now, there's a bunch of different options available for machine. Well, there's a few options. There's a few companies making machines. Um, these machines have to go through all kinds of hurdles, uh, at this, to get, to be approved by the state, for example. And uh, so there's been a a filtering effect, and the state has not approved many of the best machines. Um, And so meanwhile, uh, Dan Anorato, the county executive, has to make this decision, and um, he really doesn't have very many options, especially if he has to make his decision immediately. So I think one big question is whether they're going to try to get a new system installed for the May primary. Um, I'm hoping that... uh, That they'll just uh, punt on that and use the old voting machines that we have, the old lever machines for May primary, and then go for a new system in November uh, and then hope that the federal government just uh, lets them do that without uh, penalizing them uh, if they're working in good faith to get this job done as fast as possible. This is happening in hundreds or thousands of counties all across the country.
0: Right. So, <clears throat> so, so, no decision was taken today, as far as we know. We should check the paper to see whether it has been.
1: Yeah. As far as we know, no decision was made. But I mean, the editorial that I wrote um, with David Eckhart on Sunday mainly focused on well, the problems with Diebold, which is the company that originally was the front runner because they they could get the machines for the May primary. But I think uh, once that once they've decided not to not to not to jump try to that. do that to yeah. jump on that, which mm-hmm. is pretty unrealistic in my view. Um, that they've got other, maybe have a few other options to think about, and it, it is true that there are many, many well-documented problems with Diebold Corporation, with both the equipment they they make, as well as the um, the legal issues they've gotten into, the question of the the truthfulness of the of the messages of, of what the, what they say, and the question of the quality of the code that they that they write, uh, and the software engineering practices that they employ. And the actual functioning of the machines—the fact that there's just many reports of the machines simply not working when they needed to work—is as, as recently as 2004, when um, very high percentages of machines in, in various counties around the country has failed to to function properly. Um, so, uh, it's it's complicated, and, and I, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, we are, okay. So we wrote, wrote our editorial, kind of arguing number one for a paper trail, voter verifiable paper trail, and that can be done in two. Quite different ways. One is the the the, the um, mar- um, paper ballots that you mark.
0: Yes, yeah, so a mark sense ballot. Mark
1: sense ballot. You mark the ballot with little little boxes. You fill in uh, with your vote. Then you feed that into a, a scanner, which reads in your vote. And then that scanner can actually check it for legit for legality. It can say things like, uh, for example, if you vote for two candidates for the same office, it can reject it and say you can't do that. Um, Point that out. You can get a new ballot,
0: or tell you that it wasn't able to read it, or or tell you, you can't
1: know. read it or something. Yes. So very quickly, you get feedback about whether your ballot was properly readable, and then then um, there's a paper record that goes into a box once it's read correctly, um, and it goes into a box and we have a paper record, um, and then of course the standard system. The design of these things is to pick a random subset of the precincts and count those votes by hand, compare those with the machine counts. If those are systematically correct, then then you're um, you have a lot of confidence in the Validate the election. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but if that doesn't work, then the real record is going to be the paper. That's that's, that's the official record of the election. So, uh, but
0: And there's a second system, which is uh, kind of a receipt. So you might want to explain that as well. You
1: mean with the, Okay, with so paper, when, when they, yeah. what they call a DRE, a direct recording of elections machine, right. where you have a touch screen. You push your choices on the screen. It then prints something out, which you can view the different machines have slightly different designs, but basically, what happens is you view a printed version of your of your vote. If it's correct, you cast your ballot. It then takes your paper, picks the paper printout, puts it into a box somewhere, records your vote.
0: Right, I and mean, the um, diebold machine does neither is neither of these. Right?
1: Well, the diebold machine, I think some of them, some of them do have the paper, mm-hmm. the paper trail. There's a whole complicated issue regarding the problem is that in Pennsylvania, that none of these machines, none of the DRE machines with a paper trail
0: that's my have point. been approved so by the, the state. So the one that they were actually considering this week, uh, which apparently they have not chosen to take, it, did not it, have this it, feature. It
1: can. I yeah. think it can be a, a, a printer can be stuck onto the machine. But it has to be certified. But that's not certified by the state. And so Mike Seamus gave a talk about a week ago. Mike is a professor um, in the School of Computer Science, but he's also... Um, one of the election examiners for the state. I think there are just two of them.
0: There are two, yeah.
1: Who who really stands in a very powerful position to be making these decisions? And his in his talk, he basically explained why he rejected all of the paper, all of these printer-based machines. And uh, his reading of the law is that if, if, for example, the printed ballot has a barcode on it that the voter can't understand,
4: then in that his view, that
1: violates some. Piece of fine print that there's not something on there that the viewer can't read, or there's a if there's a serial number on it which could conceivably be used to identify the voter. Uh, that that's that that's in violation. So, so it's a big battle. Yeah. And so, uh, but as far as I can, and there's a well, there's a lot of people very interested in this issue. And at the meeting, the board of electors meeting, uh, both times, the room was was packed with people. Uh, many with very strong opinions and also many with very educated, very well-educated people uh, seem to know a lot about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so you mentioned someone from Ohio had... Uh, it was, was really
1: was railing against Diebold. Actually, there were a lot of people really upset about Diebold. The Diebold was even in the, in, in the game at this point. Upset so we a have, we have a people. link on the
0: Left Out website to an, uh, an Associated Press article yesterday about some miscounting, uh, an election thrown out in Ohio uh, because of miscounting of elections uh, by Diebold machines in which the number of votes cast was more than the number of registered voters in that area. So It seems uh, highly So is this suspect. just an
1: Internet rumor, Bob?
0: <laughs> it's an Associated Press news article. Oh, okay. That's all I can tell you. Okay. Uh, so yes, the usual way to denigrated is to claim that it's an Internet rumor. Uh by the way, listeners are welcome to call us, uh four one two two six eight nine seven two eight if you wish to discuss uh the voting uh voting machine decision that the county is uh is uh could be making as we speak. We don't know exactly when they're going to make their decision, yeah. do we?
1: Um, and so there's a lot of a lot of pressure on these people because there's, the federal government has promised $12 million if they proceed with the plan.
0: So the county board of elections consists of uh, Dave Fawcett, who's a county councilman, Dan Honorado, we all know, the county executive, John DeFazio, who's a county councilman, and I think there's one other no, person. No, that's it. That's it. There's those, three of them on that three. election mm-hmm. board. And, I, and they're really going to make this decision. Right. And it seems that uh, Dave Fawcett seems firmly on the side of having an audit trail, and it's not so clear with the others as I understand it. So our listeners, yeah. uh, I'm, I I'm advising actually, our listeners who pay attention I to this issue. I think there's some,
1: I think, uh, <clears throat> well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to. You know, we don't do know, they, but yeah. it's just
0: a matter of speculation. Yeah. But we should mention that Richard King, who is working an organization called PA Verified Voting, Uh do you remember no, the name? Vote,
1: vote PA. Uh, uh
0: If we can remember. I think it's,
1: it's called VotePA.org.
0: So he was previously a guest on Left Out is, uh, uh a link to his, uh, to his website will be on the, uh, Left Out webpage where you can easily, you can easily find it. And nationally there's verifiedvoting.org, which, right. uh, is, uh, David Dill, who is, uh, running that as a professor at Stanford. He also was a guest on Left Out. So this is a topic we visited several times so over the years.
1: The war, some, seems like, so the, the Post Gazette published our, our editorial. And we're, on Sunday. Yeah, on Sunday. We're happy about that. But that same day there was another article by, by a writer about the issue.
0: Just a straight uh, straight, uh, news coverage, article, New and Harvard. that article
1: mm-hmm. had some strange things in it. For example, it quoted uh, somebody from an election, from an election, uh, 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 you know, uh, one of the election judges in California, talking about how great the diebold machines work. Well, this person turns out to have been a diebold employee, not a person who judges elections. So. uh so I think there's some, maybe something many going on. In this. Yeah, so many we have, have two,
0: we have two callers in the last okay. few minutes remaining. Yeah. If I may interrupt you, Danny. First caller is Carlana, I believe, is her name. Uh, could you go ahead, please? Uh, sorry, that person seems we, to have hung up. Uh, the second caller is Chris. Are you on the phone?
3: Oh uh, yeah.
0: Hi Chris. Uh, thanks for calling. Thanks, uh, for calling. thanks for calling. Left out. Go for it.
3: Bob, Danny, great show. Danny, great op-ed. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I sent uh, emails today to uh, you know Honorado, Rich Fitzgerald. And uh, there's two other people, um, Fawcett
0: and yeah, Fawcett, uh, yes. what's
3: his name, Jumpin' Johnny DeFazio. So I sent them all emails about this. And I wanted to highlight a couple of quotes from the Post-Gazette on Sunday. The other story about the problems <coughs> with the Diebold machine. The uh, head of uh, administrative services for the county said, well, obviously we're not going to make decisions based on hearsay and what's on the Internet. So I told these guys, I said, well, somebody remind her that obviously you can't make decisions based on uh, unsubstantiated claims about their products either. Right. It cuts both ways. The other quote was the guy from Diebold, Spokesman for Diebold who said uh, <clears throat> uh, there are some people out there who are, who are sacrificing what's good for what's perfect, for striving for what's perfect. Well, I told the council people exactly. What's perfect is, is exactly what our goal is. When you're trying to preserve the sanctity of voting in each ballot, each person's vote—that's the underpinning of democracy. You got it has got to be perfect, and good enough only serves thy interests. interest.
1: Yeah, but so, but, but Chris, I, I, that's, that's not a, quite how I would say it. Because mm-hmm. well, that's how I said it. Okay, okay, because all right, thanks for calling. Well, you can stay. No, on, I'm going to hang on. No, stay on the line. You're I, almost I, done. Let me respond. <laughs> um, j- just. Uh, the, the thing about it is that, with these electronic the d r e machines without a paper trail, um, there is the potential for a real a real disaster i mean imperfect, not just meaning one vote out of a thousand is wrong with imperfect meaning somebody gets control of the election through nefarious means huh. or thousands of votes just disappear into the ether so I, I think that 's not to say to say that, that oh, we 're throwing out the good because we 're trying to get the perfect i think that 's that's not – I don't buy that statement. Uh, Chris, are you still there? Okay. No, I've Chris hung up. I'm sorry, Chris. We just ran out of time. Um, uh, and um,
0: Well, thank you for uh, listening to Left Out. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see you all then. Thank you. Goodbye.